we had changed so much. Every step of the way, I was always willing to learn. I was always asking questions, not only of my team, but I would go outside and look to CFOs who had already done what I was doing. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Hi, welcome. I'm Tiffany Fox Quintana, VP of Marketing at Stamply, and joining me today is Scott Almeida, the CFO of Recorded Future. Scott, please introduce yourself as well. Sure. Thanks so much, Tiffany. I really appreciate it. I am Scott Almeida. I'm the CFO of Recorded Future. I have been here since 2013, which someone recently said, so Scott, you've been there almost a decade. And it, it kind of it kind of <laughs> took me by surprise. And then someone else told me that that's uh, like a dinosaur in tech these days to have been at the same company that long. So all sorts of like really weird feelings about that, but all been a great journey for me. And it's just been such a fun time. Recorded Future is a um, cybersecurity company that's 100% SaaS based. And so we focus on threat intelligence. So what that means to us is gathering all the information we ever possibly could about all the cyber threats um, all across the world and structuring all that information in a way that we can deliver it very easily to our clients on uh, through a web application and also through an API directly to the systems they use to protect themselves. And the growth we've had over the last number of years has been just fantastic. I think when I started here, we had about a million dollars of ARR and this year we'll close close to 200 million. So it's been quite a journey for us. That's amazing. That is amazing. You know, when we were talking earlier, you did uh, bring up the idea of how CFOs should be thinking about cybersecurity. And, you know, I think we decided, you know, that's definitely a big topic, but I would love to hear, you know, a few points on that, to to be honest. Yeah, it's 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 just such a big area. And there are some things that CFOs can can squarely attack, you know, right out of the gate without a lot of like, super fancy stuff. I always I always say to people that, there are some very minimal investments you can make and tools you can look at to kind of protect your organization regardless of size. So one is, you know, dual factor authentication. If you mandate that across all your tools, it just it it increases the level of security dramatically. The other one is, you know, some of these um these services you use are much more secure than others. Like you think about it, I know back in the day, you know, everybody would get um you know, a server so they could have mail. And now Google, I mean, the security on Google Mail is just so much better than anything you could actually try to accomplish on your own. Um, unless you're a giant organization, then maybe you can do that. Right. So those are some really simple things. And then, you know, as you get further and more sophisticated in your in your uh, security posture, some of the things that you look at the big breaches over the past, you know, since I've been here anyway, I can think yeah. of some massive breaches that have happened via third party suppliers. So then you start thinking about your third party Very risk. True. 
And that's an area where there are a lot of solutions today where you can start monitoring your third parties, the important ones for you. And, and we actually do have a module for that. Um, but that's just one area that CFOs are probably a little more acutely aware of because it's all the vendors that we work with, right? And so you can start yeah. thinking about the vendors that have access to your system and start monitoring what they're up to. And that's because it is such a way for um, for adversaries to get at you. So that's that's another kind of easy way and kind of entry level way to get into um, monitoring for um, your, you know your attack surface, right? And so th right. that's those are some some easy things. And then just you know there are other products around just kind of the 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 low the easy blocking and tackling around. Um, you know, your, your general brand. So our, our, our adversaries uh, registering domain names that look very similar to yours because they're right. typo squatting you and they're going to they're gonna launch an attack either at your clients um, or, or your employees. Um, other things around leaked credentials and that sort of thing. All those things um, are just some really easy ways that kind of CFOs can kind of very quickly get involved in and, and, and make a big difference to the, um, to the organization. So those are some some quick ones that yeah. uh, quick wins that you can get. But you know this this topic is just so massive, and you think yeah. about the industry being I don't know people say it's three hundred billion. You you know with all that money wow. being spent, you can imagine how long this conversation could go on around cybersecurity. <laughs> exactly. No, it sounds like a fascinating uh, discussion and topic, and something that should be definitely top of mind for uh, any CEO or CFO out there growing a company and needing to protect assets and, uh, and key information out there. So definitely understand the urgency of it and the importance of it as well. Um, one thing I did want to do is dive in a little bit to your path to CFO. I mean, being at a company for 10 years, yes, absolutely. We don't hear about that a lot these days. Like our parents may have, you know, worked at the same place for 30, 40 years, but uh, my parents were always thinking like, wow, you move your job so much. What's going on with you? Can't you hold it down? I'm like, no, I'm in tech, mom. I'm in tech. <laughs> so It is pretty interesting. And so, you know, I, I got started the way so many other you know, CFOs got started. I started off in public accounting, right? And you know, to be to be fully transparent, I didn't have the best grades in college, so I couldn't get into the big four account. Well, what's now the big four? I think back then it was the big eight, so it was even easier to get in, and I still couldn't. And um, and so what I did was I went to a, a smaller firm, and I started working there, and then worked my way up to getting into one of those big firms. And the thing that I thought that did for me at that early stage was kind of give me a stamp of approval yeah. that, you know, I um, I had a certain level of knowledge, right? And so that's what I think those big firms did right. for me back then. And then it kind of opened up a lot more doors. Um, you know, very early, I knew that I liked smaller companies. I liked working at earlier stage companies. And so I tried to focus on that, um, you know, at the accounting firms. And when I when I finally um, decided to leave, uh, again, this is something that, you know, it's one of those things that I feel like I also have very bad timing over and over again. So I, uh, I, I left in March of 2000. And for those people uh, listening that are old enough to know, that was the very peak of the NASDAQ. And then it just went straight down from there. And so, you oh, know, dear, I, yeah. I got there uh, at, a, at a startup and um, and it was literally we were just starting to come up and we got up to like, you know, 50 or 60 employees and then just went straight back down. So maybe I was the 20th employee and then I was the third to last to leave, you know, it was closing up the door behind me. Yeah. 
So that kind of gave yeah. me a, a good experience of look, you know, sometimes things work and sometimes things don't, but you got to keep keep working yeah. through it. Um, I eventually got yeah. to it. I have a vivid memory in my just ingrained in my head of being in San Francisco and driving by a place and just seeing these people coming out with their boxes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it got yeah. to that. Like, I, you know, we ended up having to, you know, move out of where we were with our boxes, right? And then we moved into this yeah. other spot that was a, uh, we were we were subleasing it from something of a company called Dan's Chocolates. I'm not sure if it's still around, but it was like, they sold chocolates online. And that was seemed like a wild success at the time. And I think they got bought by someone for a lot of money. But um, yeah, people don't get like that didn't live through that, like all the stuff that happened around yeah. that. But again, just terribly horrific timing. And then in, um, and then after that, I eventually, it, you know, one of the, the goals I had set or one of the aspirations, I should say at that time, I, I, I was really into venture capital and the idea of it. And so I was able to work myself into my first CFO job as the CFO of a small venture capital firm. And um, it was a great experience for me because I probably, I don't know if I was qualified or not for that job, but I, um, I, I got the job in, in, I, you know, you call it the CFO, but really it was the chief cook and bottle washer, right? Like I, I, yeah. I, I remember my, uh, my dad showing up to the office one day and I have all this mail and I'm like, Hey, do you, you know, before we go to lunch, do you mind if we hit the post office? He's like, Oh, so you're the mail boy. You're not actually the CFO. And I was like, yeah, thanks dad. I appreciate that. Yes. But I'm mailing the checks, dad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But what that gave me was an opportunity to sit through, you know, board meetings because, you know, we had board seats. And yeah. so I'd be an observer in some of the, 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 uh, in the portfolio companies board, board meetings, which was interesting at a young age, you know, I think I was 28. And then I, um, and then I could sit in and be a part-time CFO at a lot of these companies as well and help them out because, yeah. you know, they, it was early stage. So they may, maybe didn't have a CFO. So it was just a great overall experience. And, um, and that kind of got me on my path that I feel like kind of led to where yeah. I am today. There were a lot of, a lot of twists and turns in the road in between, um, yeah. some good, some, some less. And, uh, but it all got me to record a future. So, um, and it's been yeah. a fun ride for sure. Yeah. That's an amazing, an amazing journey. Um, did you always know, I mean, that you, like you felt finance was your destiny and that's what you wanted to do or it's very funny because i uh i joke and again you know um i i remember my dad looking at the boston globe it's a it's a local newspaper up here in the northeast and it um and they had like the top paying jobs right whatever like it, it, there was a some ep like um you know, there wasn't a salary.com. There wasn't all these like tools. Right. And so every year they came out with the highest paying initial jobs. I think I was 13 years old. And I'm looking at this with my dad. And I kind of liked math. You know, I was good at it. Yeah. And near like somewhere, it wasn't at the top of the list, but it wasn't at the bottom of the list. It was kind of in the middle, but like decent. And it was accountant, CPA. And I was 13 years old. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. And so from 13, I had my path and I just, I just wrote yeah. it. And uh, so I don't know if it was the, the, the best decision. I don't know if it was the most thoughtful. I don't know if it was, you know, the most fulfilling in my life. It's turned out all right. But, um, but that's when I decided I was going to be an accountant, which is kind of hilarious. Like at 13, someone says they yeah. want to be an accountant, right? Of yeah. all things. It's like, I guess maybe, <laughs> you know, and I said, 
at that point, like I decided to be boring for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) You don't seem like you're a very boring person, Scott. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But no, so yes, from that point on, then I I, kind of kept focusing on getting better and better at all my school stuff and then ended up going to a small business school here right outside the city that led to, you know, going to be a CPA. Yeah. I sometimes feel like I missed my calling. One of my favorite times of the year is tax season. And I love doing my taxes for some weird reason, but yeah, it was funny because at my first uh, CPA firm, I actually did taxes. You know, if you go straight to the big firms, you kind of get to pick between audit and tax. And so, but at the smaller ones, it's like, you're doing it all. And so you kind of see both sides of a client's picture, which is interesting. And it got me to to know a lot more and understand a lot more. At the same time, I, uh, you know, I've made the conscious decision to to not focus on taxes. <laughs> so I do not do my own taxes. <laughs> the, the first time I, I made enough money where I could pay someone else to do it, I did. <laughs> The first time I actually used a CPA, um, I caught a massive error that they made and we had to refile everything. So I was just like, oh no. One of the interesting things you said is that you had this opportunity at a very young age to sit in on all of these board meetings and really start to learn all of that and even act a little bit as a a part-time CFO for some of those portfolio companies. You know, when a company is just starting out there, like how would you advise that they kind of structure their team and the type of person that they look for in coming in to be that first finance role, whatever it may be? Yeah. So I think the, the biggest thing is someone that's going to roll up their sleeves, right? I, I I am always amazed when I get a call from a headhunter that says, hey, we got this great opportunity. Um, they're looking for someone that's got IPO experience. And so then I'm like, all right, well, you're talking about, you know, a handful of people. So, and it's not me, but okay. Yeah. So you want someone who's, who's got IPO experience and can scale a company from a hundred million to, you know, a billion and I'm waiting for the punchline. And then they say, and it's a series yeah. A company. And I just, <laughs> I sit there and I say, you know, you're never going to find someone who's done that to fill this role. They're like, ah, well, yeah. And then we have a real conversation yeah. after. And the thing that I always think about is early stage companies, the smaller you are, the more of a, you know, kind of, um, you know, a, a, a Swiss army knife you need. You know, when I started at Recorded yeah. Future, because that's exactly what I was. I was willing to roll up my sleeves. I was willing to come in and learn. I was willing to do whatever it took and work my you know, tail off to be able to get the job done. And that's the kind of person you need as that first person. Because, you know, I, I joke with people that when I started here, I was the CFO. You know, let me puff out my yeah. chest. I was the CFO. I was yeah. also HR because there was no HR. I was also yes. yeah. uh, legal because we didn't have a lawyer because, you know, you're small. You don't have a full-time yeah. lawyer. Um, and then I was also administration. So if the toilet backed up, someone had to go in and plunge it. And, you know, like, so everything, all steps, you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves. And, you know, the thing that I've always found, even today, like nothing's above me. You know, like if I see if I see some trash on the floor in the office, I'm going to pick it up and throw it away. When you find that first person, it's so important to find someone who's willing to, one, do everything, but then two, willing to learn. When I came in and we were that size, right, call it 30 people or something, if I thought that I knew everything I needed to know to be a CFO at that point, I would have been thrown out about a year and a half later because we had changed so much. So at every step of the way, 
I was always willing to learn. I was always asking questions, not only of my team, but I would go outside and look to CFOs who had already done what I was doing and then say to them, and I knew a bunch, right? I wasn't coming in like as a total newbie, but you know, I've never taken a company public. I've never, you know, been at a company that as the CFO that was, you know, 600 people, which we are today over that. Like, so as you start thinking of these things, like you really have to get ahead of it and you really have to be very humble and not say like, well, I've, I've always done this. This is going to work. I've always done that. This is going to work. Right. And it's funny because I say that to the team all the time that I, you know, my team, and now they've started to throw it back in my face when I push back on something like, hey, Scott, just because that's the way we did it, that's not how we're going to go forward. And I'm yeah. like, all right, yeah, you're right. Like, and so, but that mentality yeah. is what's going to allow, you know, people to grow individually, but also allow you to grow with the, the company. And I think that's super important. It sounds like you've created a really good culture within your own team that they they feel that comfort to be able to say, hey, you said not to, you know, they they don't have a problem challenging you. Like, how do you encourage that in there? And because it's the diversity of all of those different thoughts that can help make the decisions better. Yeah, I think being humble, right? And then I think the other thing, and this is, I mean, this is one of the things that I'm more passionate about is hiring people better than me. You know, I I look at some of the best managers in our company and they've never been afraid to hire people better than themselves at whatever it is. It's not like you're going to hire when, you know, when you're just starting out, you're not going to hire a second CFO. It's not going to happen that way. But when I got my first hire, the thing that was most exciting to me was I know that I'm terrible at taxes, which we already talked about. So the first person I hired, (laughs) I made sure that they were awesome at taxes because you know, state sales and use tax is kind of a big deal, especially where it's kind of developing with SaaS and all that. And I know companies can get in trouble with it. So that was one thing because I had researched and all the rest that I said, look, I need to have someone who's really buttoned up on this and is going to get us in a great spot with it. And so when I found that first person, it was interesting because one of the um, references I did, they told me that uh, the individual had an unnatural and uncanny affinity for state sales and use tax. And I was like, all right, that's my person. That's yeah. your person. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's those, those are the things that, you know, when you're starting in a small organization, you know where your strengths are and you do tend to, to fill those gaps and bring in the people that can um, just fill them in for you in the way that makes you stronger together. Right. Absolutely. What are those markers that you're looking for when you're talking to potential hires. So some of those th- same things that I mentioned earlier, the the willingness to learn, you know, like a lifelong learner if you want to yeah. use some, you know kind of a <laughs> a term that people use today and and th- that they're not so confident that they won't question, right? And that it's that they're willing to kind of take on new things because if if all they're going to say is well this is how we did it at my last place and this is the right way, well, how many experiences have you had? Yeah. Is that the only place you've done that? Have you done this at five different places? Okay, well, now you've got best practices. But if if best practices are based on a sample size of one, all right, well, let's kind of open up our scope a little more. Right. So I think one thing is you want people who are good, right? You want people who are smart people. You want people who are going to work hard. And you want people who are going to be open to learning. And I think the, you know, and then finally, which is probably the most important people that you want to work with, you know, that's just so important Absolutely. because building that team culture that is going to be able to be open to me questioning them, them questioning me, 
having those kind yeah. that kind of open dialogue that happens with people that you want to work with. I do feel like finance has changed a lot since like my very first uh, role in a company to, you know, kind of being afraid of finance, like there's so much going on there and they know all the numbers and they know all of this. Um, You know, what are some of those things that you've done to bridge gaps between finance and and the rest of the organization? Yeah. So I think one is being approachable, right? Um, That is just super important because if you're not approachable, if you're too important for people to talk to, then you're going to miss out on a lot. You know, one thing that I've always found is people have always been comfortable talking to me. I think that's probably because I'm comfortable talking to people. I'm willing to get out there and have conversations. And then as you talk to people, they get more comfortable with you and they're more willing to share like things about the business that you need to know in order to do your job better. So I think constantly being available for that, whether it's, you know, I mean, I don't have an office. I sit at a desk just like everyone else. And there's no like special conference room that, oh, well, that's where Scott's office really is, you know, just sitting (laughs) around people. And so, you know, my seat uh, physically was right next to the sales organization for the longest time because, you know, I wanted to hear what was happening on the sales side so that it could better, like I could learn more about our product and how it sold, but then also hear the problems that they were having as they went down the path to sell. And you can kind of get a lot of feedback because they're so front facing. And then, you know, just doing that with each of the different teams in your organization and being closer to them and open to listening, which is an important thing, because I think sometimes it's easy just to talk and not listen. Um, and And as you do that, it opens up your whole organization. Then as you get more mature, then having those business partners That'll work with each of the groups and really partner with them. Not on, you know, if if they need something, not the first answer not being no. The first answer being, well, let's figure out how to do this. And there's probably some give gets we can do to be able to maneuver things so that you can have this, right? If you need this today, is there something you can push off, uh, you know, maybe next month or the month after that that'll fill the gap from a finance perspective? So really just having that open mind to work with people that way. So being from marketing, I'm always curious how, you know, you've worked in your career with marketing in general. I mean, traditionally lots of spend comes out of a marketing organization and being able to control all of that. What are some of the things that you've done to make sure that you have insight into the marketing world and how you can help them? One thing that we've done here, and this is something that I think is cultural within the organization, which, you know, from a finance perspective, it's great from every other perspective, I'm not sure it is, but we've always had a ton of discipline around spending. So there hasn't been this idea of people can go off and spend what they want without, you know, getting proper approval, without staying within a budget. So that discipline and the discipline has to go all the way to the top, because I know there are plenty of CEOs who are just like, oh, no, go do it, go do it, go do it. You can't have that kind of freewheeling spend if you actually want to control the budget. So kind of putting in that accountability at each step. So one thing that, you know, we've done since I've been here, which, you know, again, chief cook and bottle washer is, is reviews of the, of the um, budget to actuals on a monthly basis and looking at those in a real way. And yeah, you're going to have overrun some months because, you know, when you're budgeting at that early stage, you know, you're straight lining a lot of things, you know, certain things happen in certain months, but you don't really budget that way. And so you're going to have these things. But if you look at it, and you constantly compare against it, then you're going to know when you start going over in one direction or under another direction, and then you can start making adjustments. 
But if you wait to do that, you know, quarterly or halfway through the year because you get tied up with something, like you're going to end up going over. And, you know, it's it's not right. a good cadence to get into. The other thing is we've always had either the CEO or CFO has to sign documents, which when yep. early on, when you do that, like it does control the spend because now they know they have to bring something to someone and get it approved that they're not allowed to, to sign off on those things. So it does create a little bit of a bottleneck, but in early stage, you can move quick enough. And, uh, and that makes a yeah. big difference because now if I have to look at everything, now they have to really explain it. Then it might get a little yes. more uncomfortable with, okay, well, why are we getting a box at the Red Sox game or at the, you know, whatever it might be? It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you can start asking the harder questions, which, okay, well, how many clients yeah. are going to be at that? How many of our employees are going to be at that? We need to switch that ratio right. so it's not two, <laughs> two of us to one of them. We got to get it the other way around. And so having that visibility, and it is a lot of work and it's hard, and, and that's one way. That's the very manual way that we started off. But nowadays with the tools that are out there, you can really get a lot more visibility into it. And it makes it a lot, a lot easier, I think. Um, and the thing is, a lot of these tools, I, I suspect that I'm not um, abnormal in this. But when you're in the middle of doing stuff, sometimes you're just so overwhelmed that you're like, I can't possibly think. Of, of implementing a tool. Like, I don't have the time. How yes. am I going to do this? But what, yeah. what you don't realize is how much better it's going to be after. And half the time, it's not even as hard as you really think it's going to be. You build it up in your head that it's right. a big, big process to do this. When in fact, you know, it's probably half as much as you think it is or even less. And then it's going to save you so much time on the other side. And those tools that you can put in yeah. place to have that visibility, early, the earlier you do it, the better off you're going to be because it's easier to implement early on because you don't have as much data to port over. And then um, it's going to allow you to grow a lot faster. I mean, there's been so many changes probably since you've started your career to where we are now, just like the entire digital transformation, right? What do you think is that kind of cornerstone anchor of that fear of that implementation of something new? Because I think we both started our careers when it was a box that was there that you had to actually have someone come and install and connect to your network. I literally, my first place, because it wasn't like a national firm, I had paper. I had 16 column yes. paper that went across. Like this idea of, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't even know how to use it now, but like that's how auditing was done. It was crazy. Accounting was done that way. But uh, did you use an abacus? <laughs> it wasn't an abacus, but I did have the 10 key with a little. A little paper <laughs> flying off of it. You know, the only thing I was missing was the green visor. So, yes. <laughs> so funny. It's not just work wise, it's everything wise. Like the fear of, you know, going to that new restaurant, like, oh, well, I don't know if they're going to have a menu that I like, or the, you know, like you always get the same thing at the same place, or, you know, you, you don't want to drive a different way because, you know, you're going to get lost that time, or like just everything that people get into these repetitive processes. In the yeah. fear of like, oh, that change is going to cause so much disruption and I can do it this way now. I, I don't know about that. So I think that's just a natural human thing to kind of settle in on those, yeah. those processes and the things that we do and that we know we can do in one way versus now all of a sudden I change it. That's going to change everything in the fear of change. And right. so knowing that it's there, I think the thing is we all have to fight through that and embrace it. 
so that we can get to that other side, the the good part, right? And and there is that good yeah. part. That's what you have to keep telling yourself. It will be better. It will be better. I just have to get there. How do you help your team that may be afraid of that change too when you're bringing in something new? You know, the thing is the team, because I think we're probably skewed in in a direction because we're earlier stage. You know, like I said, we're only 600 people. We, um, you know, people don't come to a company like this to not have change. They come to a company like this so that things happen. And so I, you know, at this stage, I'm probably slowing things down more than they'd like, you know, they'd like to move things a lot quicker and move to that change because they know that it's going to get to that better spot. And, um, and so I think here I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that, you know, we do have more embrace of that. That said, you know, there are some things that we change that, yeah, people do get nervous about. And I think the biggest things there is just the education, the upfront education, yeah. getting people involved earlier in the process change and say, here, hey, we're thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts? Where do you, you know, where do you see frustration? Where do you see friction? Now let me build that into yeah. what I'm going to do so that then you get them being like, yeah, let's get this done. This is awesome. You can do let's this. Do yeah. This. And so I think that's the biggest yeah. thing about bringing people along on the journey of change is just getting them involved earlier. Um, and then, and then a lot of time, and then, you know, there's still going to be some people who still fight it. And, and if that's the case, you still just got to plow through cause you got to get, you got to move through. Absolutely. Well, Scott, thank you so much. Um, you've had an amazing journey. It sounds like you're building an amazing culture at recorded future. And, uh, I think your future looks oh, bright. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you sure. so much. This has been great. Thank you so much, Tiffany. This is awesome. Thank you for listening to the leaders of modern finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply that centers communication on top ways so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.